Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Hey, wherever you are, however you're listening... Welcome to America's Talk Radio Show about Opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho with co-hosts Tobias Wright and Weston Williams. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Call us on air, get your opera voice heard. What's your hot take on what we're talking about? Again, that number, 847 847- 866-9687. All right, tonight we introduce our new segment, the OBS Hall of Fame, in which one of our teams shares stories and clips about the ways in which one artist or one opera changed their life. Weston's going to kick things off, find out who or what he chose. But first we take a look at an article in last week's Washington Post in which music critic Emma Jett wrote, quote, every once in a while the life of a critic, something... One does on one's beat comes to define them for some time to come. I had one such moment this spring to the outside eye. The choice may not have seemed that momentous. And quote will tell you what her decision was, plus at 8.40 p.m. two-minute drill. Everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land and our hot takes on those stories. Over to uh, Oliver Camacho in Studio Two. I went to see Jesus Christ Superstar on Friday. Okay. And now I know that you and I have nothing in common. <laughs> I don't even know why we're in a show together. Dog, we're, we're not going to Monday evening quarterback no. that thing again. We're going to. No, gonna I don't want to talk about it anymore. No. Oh, no. And I, I mean, like, I have to say the performances were excellent, but uh, that was the first time I ever heard that piece. And that was the first time I've heard music that loud at Lyric Opera, like <laughs> like blowing my eardrums out. Like, I went in hearing. Yanni, was it the loudest and music I left you've ever Laurel, heard, period? So. No, I've been at Rock Hots in, oh, okay, my, in okay. my youth. In my but, youth. <laughs> but uh, I haven't really. It's It's been since I was a kid, like going to concerts thanks to speakers, that I felt that much noise going to my ear holes. You know? <laughs> Tobias Wright laughing in the background. What's going on, dog? Uh, not much. Hey, Get- have you been watching the NBA Conference Finals? No. Well, no. I'm a five foot four white guy. I don't watch NBA. So there are five foot four white guys in the NBA. It makes them feel very inadequate, you know. Um, well, anyway, every game's been a blowout. But Oliver, to your point about really, really loud things, mm-hmm. later on this summer, George and I are going to go to a concert that's going to be amplified, and I think it might be louder. Ooh. What concert is that? Can I tell him, George? Is it Sarah, Sarah Bareilles? 50 Cent. 50 Cent? <laughs> Do you know who that is? 50 Cent. It's half a dollar. <laughs> 50 Cent. <laughs> Weston Williams, what's up with you? I am not hearing any loud amplified music coming up, I'm afraid. So no news with me. Sorry. I do, Oliver, I do what I can. Boo. Oliver, getting ready for the French Open, right? Yeah, Roland Garros is starting very soon, and um, my one of my new favorites, Milos Raonic, has dropped out. Mm. I'm oh. sad, and I don't know if Serena's going to play or not. But she is. She is. Okay. Supposedly, she had like an amazing dress at the wedding. At the royal wedding. Yeah, that's, have, that's the real sport. It's actually on my week. DVR. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but I can't wait to like go wait, home. Who and got married? Have, have, have some ice cream and <laughs> curl up with my cat. And wait, I don't have a cat or ice cream, but. <laughs> It was marvelous. My whole family, we got up bright and early. Baked beans on toast, cups of tea, Union Jacks fluttering in the living room. Why do you have so many Union Jacks? And why are they fluttering? They shouldn't be fluttering around Because the kids were waving them. I thought Union Jack was was like a long underwear. No, no, no. 
Well, I, 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 uh, it's, it's a union it's suit, the right? Flag of Great Britain. Oh, okay. Uh, well, while we're talking about the flag, I just want to like throw in this a little bit of news. Not quite opera, but you know, classical music. The uh, cellist who performed at the wedding, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, uh, Sheku Kana Mason. Um, Nailed it. His his <laughs> album Inspiration hit the top of the charts on iTunes today. Not like the classical music charts, the charts. Yeah. Which is really exciting, and it got you got Shostakovich. Bumping up and uh, up nice. with all the. Uh, all He's the... old enough to be my boyfriend, by the way. Oh. Like, once you're past 18, that's. I was going to say, <laughs> to be old enough to be your boyfriend, you don't have to be that old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Wait, are we not going to talk about. Really, hey, back to the royal wedding, George. Uh, <laughs> Welcome to the royal wedding, George. Meghan Markle's a, a Northwestern grad. It's true. Go yeah. cats. Oh yeah. Rawr. I got debt yeah. from there. Yeah. <laughs> We're here right now trying to pay back our debt. She does not have she does not have debt. She does not. No. Yeah. No. It's what you're listening to Opera Box score number in the studio 847 866 9687 uh last week Amajet writing in the Washington Post an article called why we didn't review the Barber of Seville and other concerts. Uh link is on our website Opera Box score. Dot com And yes, it's true. She did not review Washington National Opera's production of The Barber of Seville by Rossini. Tisk, tisk, tisk. So the question here is, and I, I think we've got to kind of go back a little bit, is what was arts journalism traditionally in its heyday? Just just so people know the, what's happening in this article, you should first of all go read it because it's really enjoyable. It's a good article. It's, it's enjoyable read. But uh, Anne Majette is the classical music, I believe it's not, they're kind of characterizing her as the editor now of, of classical music events, but we've known her as a columnist. Um, apparently, she assigns you know her staff, her team, to go out and to review certain things or collect information about certain mm-hmm. things. And there was a particular weekend in, was it Seattle? Um, Washington, D.C.? I forget where it is. I think it was D.C. Yeah, it's yeah. D.C. It's where Washington there were like four like, really important things happening. And... Um, yeah, one of them got canceled, and one of them somebody didn't show up. Like some circumstances happened, where it would seem that Anne Majette should have been able to review the Barbersville, but she there chose... was a bit of an uproar about it—a a very yeah. minor uproar, I'm sure. But you know, within the classical music reviewing community, uh, community, I'm sure it was a fairly big, uh, big, big fuss raised over it. Yeah, and apparently it was a really good performance, mm-hmm. and you know, the Washington Post did not cover it. Um, and, you know, they're blaming her, you know, for this failure to, to cover this piece. But we all know that Barsville is an opera that you can see all over the country on any given day. It's like it's like a total, you know, chestnut. And there's there's not much that's newsworthy about a Barbersville. And she had previously reviewed this production. Yeah, so the yeah. production's not new. And the maybe... production's not very good, quite frankly. Dang, George. Whoa. There you go. This is this is Guns part of the story. So keep put, put a pin in that. <laughs> but let me just say that like I'm the oldest one in the cast here and uh, on the panel here, and I used to twenty four. <laughs> I used to <laughs> really cherish reading reviews of things that I had didn't wasn't able to see, and I read reviews in the New York Times, in Chicago Tribune, not as good, um, in Opera News Magazine and Opera Magazine, uh, which I think is a British publication. Um, and yeah, I just it was like a, always a real fun thing for the Opera News. A magazine to come out so I could open it up to the review section and see and you know read about things. And I used to have a roommate whose mother lived in uh, New York and used to cut out articles from the from the New York Times and mail them to us by snail mail so that I could read these reviews. Uh, because the internet wasn't a thing at the time. <laughs> so, so you're not 24. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is back in dinosaur times. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it was, I could receive it by telegraph, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, or yeah. by owl, you know. And that's why arts journalism was so important back in the era of the dead tree press. Yes. Right. But but th- things have changed. Uh, the internet has very much stepped in to kind of throw a wrench into the whole works. Uh, now, full disclosure. Now, what, what is this intraweb of which you speak? <laughs> which everyone knows about gore. except for George. <laughs> Um, uh, I, I used to actually work for a newspaper and uh, um, a news radio, so I, I know a little bit about 
a little bit about journalism. Um, and uh, a couple of things that I think people don't necessarily realize is that beats as such practically don't exist anymore. Um, you mean somebody with a classical musical beat? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, so, so if you have like back, uh, back, you know, even 15 years ago, you would be assigned to, oh, you're doing the arts section, you're doing the sciences, you're science news, you're doing the foreign international relations news. That's what you did. That's what you were assigned to. Um, now in all of the currently existent papers, few as there now are, um, because this the the money the resources that they used to have because they're not they don't have the distribution they used to have um, is so low we, you have more what you have is more and more journalists getting packed into uh, it was like well they they used to just be an arts person but now they also have to do um, uh, local news they also have to do uh, 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 sports they also have to do this and this and this and this uh, and this was this was at every news organization I've ever kind of interacted with that has been the trend all of the older uh, veterans used to do this one thing and now they have to do everything and this is not just newspapers this is uh, all media you, you uh, it used to be if you were in radio you would only do just uh you would just do the you just speak on the air or you would just do the tech or you know or, or, or. But now you have to speak on the air, you have to do the research, you have to do the interviews, you have to be able to do all the audio processing yourself. Uh, it's very much kind of as much as one person can do. And this is particularly a problem in the arts, in a field where you're not going to get a lot of clicks online. You know, uh, you're, it's not going to be the hard news stories the papers feel like they have to report, but it's also not the soft fluff that you can um, throw on Facebook and have people click it and get the ad revenue. It's, it, so the arts are in kind of the worst possible position as far as as reviewers go in the traditional sense. And I think this is what the Washington Post is running up against, um, which is why I think performances like this are slipping through the cracks and people are kind of starting to notice, even though it's been happening, you know, now ever since the internet started um, three years ago, whenever the internet started. Um, and I think that is kind of the fundamental problem that people are vaguely aware of but don't fully understand the ramifications. Well, and something of. else that seems to happen in this article is she talks about not just that. Uh, obviously, I think that jobs have been dissolved um, and right. the landscape has certainly changed. But what she talks about is the, the other considerations that factor into it in that uh, in being a classical reviewer, there are a limited number of performances already. True. And then you take from that a limited number um, of performances that can be reviewed and then actually put into print. And so in this particular instance and in not doing the Barbara Seville, I actually thought her reasoning for not doing it didn't have to do with clicks and it didn't have to do with uh, lack of ability. I mean, she could have gone to do it, but it was interesting her reasoning and choosing what she chose. Did you have anything tell, to take tell, away from that? Tell us what no. that was. Well, she said... Um, she talked that weekend the Barbara Seville opened. There were three other concerts, a recital by the rising violinist Paul Huang. Huang, somebody help me here. Huang, yeah. Um, I'm illiterate. A performance by the legendary <laughs> Jordi Saval. You're not illiterate, you're just racist. Whoa! <laughs> by the legendary Jordi Saval and his ensemble, and a recital by the baritone Brian Mulligan um, uh, with the world premiere of a song cycle by composer Gregory Spears. I take it back, you butchered that white guy's name too. Thank <laughs> you. And she, she said she could cover two of them, and then yeah. she went on to reason uh, that. She wanted to cover the Gregory Spears concert because she he was due for a review by the Post. So she had mm. had other opportunities and had mm -hmm. to go in a different direction before. And I thought it was interesting to see, get a little bit insight. It wasn't like they didn't do Barbara Seville because they didn't think it would drive traffic to the website or that it wouldn't create uh, interest. It was because she really, truly felt that there was something yeah, more the bargain with, yeah, right. like, yeah. yeah. There, there are there are resources that need to be levied. Obviously, okay. So we're we're talking about though the fact that you know there was a time when when this type of performing arts journalism was a way of preserving people's performances, right? And you know, not everything could be recorded, not everything could be you know uh, documented, uh, but there was people who are really beautifully qualified to write about them, uh, going way back to before recordings, you know, but that art still carries through. Even to today, we have really amazing reviewers like Anne Machette, you know, who can really describe... Like Oliver Camacho. Who can really <laughs> Just like capture Oliver. the essence of performance, you know? Yeah. And uh, now that there are less of them and less space for them, uh, they have to pick their battles and it could be, you know, the kiss of death to uh, a fledgling 
chamber opera company that just needs to get on the map. And the way they get mm. on the map is by having somebody like John von Ryan or the late Andrew Patner show up and, you know, say something about them, you know, and right. get, get them in print, you know, so they could put something in their press kit, you know. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM talking about this article in last week's Washington Post and the Jet, the chief critic there, about why she didn't go to review the Barber of Seville. I mean, what what's happened then as a result is that we have this fractured journalese, if you will, right? And so now any group of idiots with access to a mic can be critics. I <laughs> yes. feel somehow insulted. I don't quite... It's just like a or bloggers, my you know? Grave. And there's places like where you can read reviews about opera, like on Opera Wire or Schmopera or Parterre. And some of them are really beautifully written, but not everybody has, you know, the journal creds mm-hmm. or maybe even the musical creds, you know. And some people sometimes write like they want to prove how smart they are mm. and they can be very scathing without really being fair to the performance, you know? It gets tricky too, like when you're in the business, as some of us in this room are, that, I mean, you're in the business, but you're also criticizing yeah. other shows in the business or at least you're discussing them. We try and stay away from kind of the hearsay and the gossip more and more, I think, on this show. But this is always my conundrum, right? Is like, here I am talking about people that I know, productions that I know. How do I speak honestly and truthfully about those without shooting myself in the foot professionally? Well, I think, you know, on this particular show, and we've talked, we were talking about this earlier, I think we are hesitant to be critical of, you know, you mentioned storefront opera companies or chamber groups that are happening in Chicago. Not necessarily because uh, I think we're afraid to be critical of our colleagues, um, but because we do know that damage can be done to a small company that does need uh, help growing. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're starting out, you you don't you're going to have some bad productions. I mean, it, it's inevitable. You have to you're, you're not going to you have to work your way out up to the point where you're able to fully express your artistic vision. If you're if you're working with a company of, of any artistic endeavor really um the the companies that start off and have a big hit right off their hand are right off right off the bat are few and far between to say the least um now that is a little difficult because i feel like you can express those kinds of opinions while still uh, that that you can express that sentiment while still criticizing it but you do have to be careful because you really don't want to scare potential patrons away from that sort of thing. Right, because like there are people who are just looking for an excuse not to go to the opera. You know? <laughs> totally. which, which is a shame. You know, it's, 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 it's real tough. It's I guess the tough. way I approach it is that there's nothing I would say on this show that I wouldn't say to somebody's face. Right? Oh, really? These are real people that we're talking about here, right? right? Sometimes they're colleagues, sometimes yeah. they're not. Sometimes they're people that I've met. Sometimes they're big league people who I'm never going to meet. And yeah, it's easier for me, a little bit harsher on them, because I know I'm never going to have to look them in the eyes. But in general, <laughs> like, yes, you want to be honest, but if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. That's, so for me, it's about, like, could I look them in the eyes and say it? That's exactly it. I mean, like, I've been now doing this for Wait 10 years. Wait a second, years. we're agreeing? How not dare really? no, you? No, no, we're, we're not really agreeing. I think you agree with me. But I've been doing this th- for about 10 years, this, you know, being, uh, you know, in people's ears and talking about, you know, my opinion and trying to influence people. And I was not always nice. And I, I, I've taken a lot of hits from people like offline, you know, personal emails written to me or organizations that shut me down and prevented me from having jobs because they knew that I had like this very public opinion. And now in my, you know, middle age, uh, I'm just, I'm just trying to be kind. And like, if I don't mention your performance, it's probably because I don't want to lie about it, you know? Mm. So I'd rather just talk about things that I really enjoy. Mission by omission. Exactly. Yeah. Talk about things that I enjoy and preview things. And like, we'll, we'll let you know about things that we think are interesting that are happening. I may even be selective about that. There may be things that I, I won't preview because I have an idea of what it might be like. I don't go see for myself before I start talking about them, you know? It's so true, though, Oliver. Like, you know, as you get to your age, my age, and, and we're very close in ages, like, you do just, you start to realize, like, man, I might as well just, like, speak the truth or, or say nothing at all. Like, life's too short for me to start bullshitting around. I, I just got to... 
I just got to keep uh, it as clean the youth here. Like I, I I feel the need to say whatever I want whenever I want. <laughs> oh, so. You're such a millennial. Yeah, classic millennial. That's me. I've I've gotten in too much trouble saying what I actually think about things. So my question for you, Oliver, then, <laughs> you know, for us here on Opera Box Score, we don't have the pedigree of John von Ryan. Yeah. Well, um, collectively, I feel like we equal one John Ryan. You know, I think uh, that's I, fair. I don't think so. <laughs> that's a stretch. <laughs> but. Do we owe it to our listeners? Do we owe it to our community to not be critical? No, but I, we owe it to our listeners to be really well-informed mm-hmm. and to have an understanding of the history and to go. I mean, that's why I'm so bad at talking about new opera because I don't have that much experience with it. And I can only react to the performance that I see. But like other things that I talk about, I... I'm not very smart. I don't know if you guys have figured that out. Like, oh. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not very intellectual. Like, I actually, it takes me many viewings or listenings of something to finally get a grip on it and to be able to talk about it with you know fluidity. And I can't do that about something I've just seen. But I can talk about Cozy Fantute until I'm blue in the face, or about Cenerentola, or about you know a number of things that I've spent my life learning about. You know, yeah. and I think we do owe it to our audiences to uh, care about the material that we're talking about and not just. Be quick to judge it because maybe we're it's our first experience with something and we don't like it, you know? Right. Well, and I think the other unique aspect about what we're doing, and I don't know, you know, I don't know the credentials from a performance or artistic standpoint of some of the critics that are out there, but yeah. for most of us in this room, we are performers or have been at some point. Right. So we understand or we are still involved with the process of creating art. Um, of creating pieces that could or should be reviewed. And I think that because of that, we we do approach it with less of a critical eye and more of an understanding when things aren't perfect. Do you yeah. know what I'm saying? And so it, it doesn't always take me several viewings to say that I didn't enjoy something. But it does take, I mean, I don't know, to... We, we, to we look at the format of, you know, what classical criticism has always been. It's like they always give you, like, the details you need to know about the production, What's especially if it's a, sure. a, a new opera, like, they give you the plot, you know. And they set that stuff up, and that takes a third of the article already, you know. And I think that there are these this new generation of people that are out there criticizing things that don't even give the audience that to talk about like what are we talking about what it they're can... just out there spewing what is bad yeah or exactly. what is good mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. let us know what you're thinking you can always connect with us of course opera box score at gmail.com now it's personal weston williams shares a life-changing moment for him in opera that's next only on opera box score and wnur 89.3 fm Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic, yet humble, salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera.
that, of course, the dance of the seven veils from Richard Strauss's. Uh, hey, Can I just say that was a phenomenal <laughs> intro from Norm? <laughs> that was amazing. I love that. Dude, you said to see my face. <laughs> Toby and I were just freaking out. I, uh, whew. Norm put some spitball on that. That thing. was delicious. It's <laughs> good. I want to give Norm a hug for recording that for us. It's uh, it's not the most near and dear opera to uh, Weston Williams are, but Copeland, fan for for the common man. I am I, I am actually a con Copeland, but that's a discussion for another time. <laughs> We're gonna start in with uh, my my particular uh, uh, as you as we just heard a little bit of uh, Zalame, Richard Strauss, um, uh, and this is just uh, just to kind of introduce what this segment is going to be about. This is uh, this is going to be about a, uh, a, a an artist, uh, a singer, usually, but not not in the case of uh, in my case, as you'll see, um, a recording, a, 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 an opera, something that is very personal to us that we feel is uh, significant in our own operatic development or is just a good uh, or an important piece of operatic history in general. And I think this really hits all of those buttons. And this particular recording that we're going to be talking about is the Zalame conducted by Herbert von Carrion uh, in 1978. I believe it's on the uh, EMI label. Um, uh, but in order to talk about it, I have to kind of go way, way, way back uh, and start off uh, at the very beginning with how I first got into opera. So here we go. <clears throat> So opera has kind of been a part of my family for literally generations and generations now. Mostly uh, the men in the family have kind of kept the tradition going. Uh, we have some of my uh, my great, uh, great grandfather's uh, uh, old uh, records of Enrico Caruso that I kind of grew up listening to on the old uh, 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 shellac record player, uh, Victrolas, um, and it's just been going on ever since then. So when I was really, really young, uh, as soon as I was old enough, uh, my dad would take me to the Atlanta Opera uh, to see uh, operas on the matinee uh, performances on Sundays. Um, and uh, we, we did have our own local opera company, but it only had a couple of shows a week. So in order to get to Atlanta, Where we had were to you drive. growing up? Uh, this is in uh, Alabama, yeah. the, that great artistic hub of our nation, Alabama. So you were crossing state lines. I was crossing straight, uh, state lines, and Dang. it was great. I loved it. Uh, we would go together. It would be like a day trip. You know, it would just be me and my dad. You know, some some sons and their fathers, they go out in the backyard, and they, they play catch. They throw the old pigskin around, but uh, neither me or my dad <laughs> Have the physical acuity for a game of catch. That's too hard for us. So instead, we went out uh, to these operas. Uh, and I remember going, um, and we, we would, it would be a great, great bonding experience. We would go several hours early. We'd have lunch. We'd kind of uh, play little games outside of the theater uh, before we went in. Um, and then we would see an opera, and then we'd drive on home. Um, and uh, I, I, I really liked the experience. I'm not sure how much I really liked the operas. You know, I would I would hear them. I'd be really excited about them in the moment. I love the stories. Anytime it would get really loud with all of the, the brass instruments really kicking in, I would really, you know, get into it, you know, get the get everything, uh, get the juices flowing, as it were. Um, but I didn't quite have an understanding of the music. Um, That's a dense piece. <laughs> oh, yeah. a, we we did not see Zalame for a very long time, <laughs> uh, but but in order to get to Zalame, I I, uh, I I I I I really I I would I would keep going and I'd keep hearing these things, keep hearing them, and I liked them. And eventually, my my brother was old enough so that he could come too, and my mom started going, and it was it became a family thing. And around around I believe it was two thousand six. Um, I had a, the weirdest day. Of my I was already life. forty by then. Yeah, so. he, <laughs> <laughs> this was before the internet. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I remember this very clearly. I, I literally woke up one morning, and my first thought of the day was, "I love opera." And I went downstairs. Was there any kind of nocturnal emission along with this <laughs> revelation? Almost, <laughs> almost certainly. Uh, but we won't discuss that. Uh, oh I, I went. This is a very emotional moment for me, Oliver. <laughs> Oliver's trying to do a like middle school sex <laughs> Well, This was 2006, so I, I was in middle school and not 40 like some people. Uh, so I went downstairs uh, after this thought, and I started just playing my dad's operas. 
and I, I was like, it was like hearing them for the first time, all the C, all the opera CDs, and he had lots of Verdi. Uh, he still is to a certain extent. He's very much kind of a late nineteenth century Italian kind Sounds of like guy. Sounds like I'd like him. Yeah, yeah. You kind of have the same, uh, the same <laughs> taste, the same taste. Yeah. Uh, and I, 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 of course, really got into that as well. But um, I, I think maybe about a year later, uh, I was uh, going into high school. Um, and I somehow managed to scrounge up all of my allowance money. Not a lot of allowance money. That's a call out for my parents if they're listening. Uh, I managed to scrounge it all together and I wanted to get something special. Um, and I, I looked online because the internet had just been invented. And I, uh, and I found this recording of Zolome. Uh, by Richard Strauss. I'd heard a little bit of Strauss before. I, I, I'd listened to his tone poems, uh, Also Sprach Zarathustra and uh, Toten Verkleurung, and I really, really, really was into them both. Um, and I was like, okay, what, what does he have as far as opera goes? Um, and at this point in time, I was... I had been in, into opera for a little over a year at this point, and, uh, and I'd kind of reached a little bit of an impasse, you know, uh, where... Uh, Everything I listened to felt like it was compromising a little bit. You know, Verdi would have these these great, intense moments, and then he'd kind of, if it was early Verdi, he he would just stop because that was the end of the aria, and then it'd be recitative, and then we'd start up again, and then it would stop. And then if I listened to any newer composers, they always felt like they were composing themselves into little boxes, uh, which incidentally is one of the things that I didn't like about Aaron Copeland at the time. But again, that's a conversation for another time. Um, they, they kept kind of getting trapped in these compromises, these walls they had built for themselves. At least that was my perception at the time. And granted, I'm a little bit more fluent in musical language now than I was then. Um, but I, I, I saved up and I bought this recording of Zalame on a whim. I didn't even like compare recordings. I just kind of picked the, the first one that came up and it was this recording, which is a darn good recording. Um, again, this is the Herbert von Carrion, 1978. You want to take a little listen? Uh, you want to go down just, just a moment. I want, I want to uh, give context for this clip specifically. Cause this was, this was really the moment that did it for me. I was, um, I was in a nerdy, nerdy, smart school. Um, that was the, the name of my high school at the time. Uh, and um, I graduated from there as oh, well. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Alumni. <laughs> I love it. Um, Go nerds. Yeah, but we were, it, it, was, it was a magnet school. So I, that basically meant that I had no social life, but I had tons of homework. And I, <laughs> and I, was, uh, um, I was in marching band. So I was coming home late and I had to work on all my homework. So this, 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 this album arrives in the mail, the CD. Um, and um, through the BMG Music Club, yeah, ex- <laughs> it comes in. I'm very excited about it, but I, I realize I don't have time to listen to the entire thing. Uh, and it was also one of those stupid, stupid ones. I think they've kind of stopped doing this, but it was one of those ones where it came with a little synopsis instead of a libretto, and you're supposed to go online, type in a little password, and it would give you the libretto, which is dumb because it never, ever worked. Um, but uh, but I, I didn't have time to figure out how to Google a libretto, so I was just like, okay, I'll just listen to the overture and uh, and then go do my homework. Of course, Solomon doesn't have an overture. I didn't know that. Uh, so I kind of started up and I was like, oh, Vishonis de Princess and Salome. I'm like, this isn't an overture. I'm just going to kind of skip ahead to a random track and just listen to what I listen to. And so I, mem- I remember specifically going to track number eight on the first CD. Um, and uh, George, if you could play that clip now, this is kind of a part of that track that I heard.
Introducing our new segment here on Opera Box Score, the Hall of Fame. George Cedarquist hanging out with you tonight with Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and talking us through this recording of Richard Strauss's Zalame, Weston Williams. So I hear that that clip, that entire track, and that was just a small snippet of it. Uh, I, I just kind of cut to uh, the part that I think probably would have most hit me back uh, back when I was a freshman or sophomore, whatever I was. Um, and uh, and I heard it, and my, my jaw kind of dropped. There was none of this compromise that I'd been hearing. If there was a climax... <clears throat> Strauss would go for it. And then he'd go for another climax on top of that. He wouldn't go back. He wouldn't try to end things because it had to end here. It would keep going. It would get louder. It would get more intense. There was no sense of being confined uh, by like, form. By form. There yeah. was there wasn't he was kicking out yeah. that form. And you know, it was yeah. I, but I, it's I, still very late romantically. We recognize exactly, things about Exactly. That is what drew 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 me to it. It was recognizable, but it was still within this context that I could understand. But it was as far as you know tonality could really go, you know. And I, I, I didn't and realize until later that you know that was kind of where Strauss himself was coming from. I think he was kind of in the same mental space that I was when it came to other operatic works. Um, but this, this, this one clip, I remember because the entire reason I just skipped to that one part was just kind of random because I didn't have time because I had to do my homework and I ended up listening to that same track about, you know, 15 times in a row which ended up being a solid a solid, you know, 45 minutes anyway, so it was a complete loss of my I don't know if I, I probably failed a test the next day, who knows Um, but I, uh, but you know I would, I came back to it later and I listened to the entire thing and it was uh, it, it was it entirely changed my outlook. So that you had this experience purely from music and not from knowing the libretto, knowing the story. Exactly. Yeah. yeah there and was, not even really caring about the singers. But there's some amazing singers the, in this cast. This I mean, is a You just heard a bit of Van Damme, Jose Van Damme and yeah. Agnes Balsas on it and Behrens is singing Zalame in this one. It is a really good cast. I'm really glad that I accidentally picked this recording. I yeah. mean, because... Uh, I mean... I, I still am not an expert when it comes to, you know, knowing who's, which singers are which. You know, I, I tend to uh, pick my recordings based on conductor, um, sound quality, things mm. like that. But this is kind of the, almost the ideal recording of Speaking this. Speaking of sound opinion. quality, what, what type of system, what type of setup do you have at this um, point? This I was, was, too. What this you was, to yeah. this was a little CD Walkman yeah. with pretty nice headphones, not, not okay. great headphones. Um, just, actually, they were a little clip-on ear headphones. Headphones, yeah. which made my ears go out, like so they kind of they kind of stuck out like an elephant for a while. Yeah, um, uh, which was not a great look. Yeah. <laughs> so we're in a, we're in a pro studio right now, and like I don't know how what compression rate you sent that file to George, but it sounds amazing in my earphones. It is here. a phenomenal. The sound quality is amazing. This is 1978, so this is the the age of hi-fi. Yeah. You know, the dynamic range on this recording is insane. <laughs> it is so good. Um, the uh, the whatever remaster mastering they put it through is very unobtrusive uh there's very little static there's very little compression on the on the high on the really loud parts it is so good Weston, uh, how how has your life intersected with recordings or productions of zalame since that time well i listen to this school. recording a lot still um i i i've listened to other recordings since then but you know I, I think, you know, with, with any recording, you know, the one you listen to first and most often is the one you kind of think of as your reference. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, in order to pre- prepare for this segment, I did actually go online and kind of look up reviews to see if I could find, you know, some more objective opinions on it just because... Of this recording? Of this recording yeah. specifically, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was it was kind of interesting to read some of them. Uh, and I kind of agreed with some of them. Uh, there was uh, apparently, according to one review I read, uh, when this recording first came out, it was a little bit controversial controversial in that it was so beautiful um it was such a they they described it as a very a very pretty uh which really celebrated sort of the the uh the 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 more sensuous aspects of the piece which of course you know adds on an extra layer of grossness at the very end when she's making out with a bloodied head of a of a literal dead saint. Um, and I, I do like the violence of this opera, too. It's, it's just a good time for the whole family. Um, <laughs> it, <laughs> um, and it really, it, it, it really is kind of a... 
a, a, it's a phenomenal recording, a phenomenal piece. And I think this is one of the things for a, a, a kid like me uh, growing up in a place where you had to drive all day to get to um, a regularly occurring opera performance. CDs, uh, well, nowadays, MP3s, you know, wh- whatever you're listening on, recordings specifically are kind of the way you get to those people. Um, really good recordings, really good conductors, really, really great singers. Hildegard Behrens is fantastic in this. She gets really, really quiet and really, really loud. She's uh, the, She almost whispers when she right before she does the kiss. I don't think we have time to play any of it, but uh, it's, uh, uh, it's a really remarkable... This is a really remarkable recording that really, really is a formative recording in my experience as an opera lover. Well, thanks for inaugurating the clip. You're welcome. Weston, really fabulous <laughs> stuff. I, I love Zalame. This opera is, is so good. If you read Alex Ross's books, the book The Rest is Noise, he talks about this opera as being really the beginning of, of 20th century music, even though it was, wasn't written until 1905. But it's... It is. It can be one of those life-changing operas, just it because is. the music Absolutely. is so memorable for all the right reasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just all the the colors in there, and the way, it, as Oliver said, it it comes from this romantic tradition. But there is something very. It's, it's cinematic. The music exactly. is, yeah. and, and like we're used to hearing the two thousand and one. Uh, you know, Space Odyssey yeah. score. And like, that's how most people know Strauss. Right. And like, it's the perfect introduction to Strauss because that's really what he's like. You know? Yeah, so. it, it absolutely is. And uh, I mean, late Strauss is great too. He gets much more mellow and and uh, he goes more, backwards. He becomes more romantic. He, he does. Later in his career, he so. does. But there's 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 really is something special about Zalamein Electra, those early yeah. operas, and even they're, Frau and Schatten. That is an mm-hmm. underrated opera. Frau and Schatten is phenomenal. Um, Strauss is great. That's my that's my last word. Things go from bad to worse in round two of Peter Gelb versus James Levine. That's next on America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Keep it locked. WNUR 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news from the past week. The Metropolitan Opera said in court documents Friday that it found credible evidence that conductor James Levine engaged in sexually abusive or harassing conduct with seven people that included inappropriate touching and demands for sex acts over a 25-year period. The Met is seeking $5.86 million in damages for what it called a breach of loyalty. Milwaukee Journal Sentinel writes that William Florescu's resignation as Florentine Opera General Director was related to, quote, violation of the Florentine Opera's policies and prohibitions concerning sexual misconduct, quote, the Florentine Opera said in a statement released Thursday. Arguably the most important Wagnerian soprano of the second half of the 20th century, the 100th anniversary of Birgit Nilsson's birth was on May 17. She made her debut with the Royal Opera in Stockholm in 1946 and then burst onto the international scene in the early 50s. And then toward the end of her long and distinguished career, Birgit Nilsson decided to establish a foundation with the mission of warning a prize of $1 million every third year or so. This year's award goes to fellow countrywoman Nina Stemmer. At a press conference to launch the 150th season of the Vienna State Opera, General Director Dominique Meyer presented a statistic, quote, correct up to this morning, that 99.00% of all tickets had been sold throughout the season. 
Houston Opera is opening up the Wortham Center again after Hurricane Harvey on September 26th. Placido Domingo will be there. On to the DL, Swedish soprano Irene Teoren has been called in to replace an ailing Evelyn Helitsius, who's withdrawn from the San Francisco Opera's production of Wagner's Ring Cycle. Renowned artist manager Ken Benson posted on his Facebook page, quote, the miraculous soprano Mariella Devia just sang her final staged opera performance. It was as Norma at Teatro La Fenice at the age of 70. And on this day, May 21st, it was the premiere of Pagliacci by Ruggiero Leon Cavallo in Milan in 1892. Hey, Toby, get out your clown costume. That's the two-minute drill. This is America's talk radio show about opera with George Cedarquest, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. Almost everybody here tonight except for Cummings, he's off working or no, something. No, it's a wedding or something. I think, yeah. yeah. Was it a wedding? Okay, yeah. pretty good. No, he, went royal the, he went wedding. to the royal wedding. He's still, <laughs> <laughs> still, he hasn't been back dare yet. He. George, I'm wearing my clown suit. Are you? Yes. <laughs> good luck for you. Did we just sing the same part? I think well, I was a little but flat. Not in the wrong, wrong key, wrong key. <laughs> I was a little flat, that was, too. That was the uh, Charles Ives version. Okay, let's let's take this going backwards uh, from the um, Mariela de Villa. I mean, we, I mean, I could do so many Hall of Fames, but Mariela de Villa would definitely be in one of them. And if you do not know her, please look her up. Uh, the last name is spelled D-E-V-I-A. And uh, she's been singing forever. And she's a bel canto specialist. Her repertoire is mainly Italian bel canto. And she sounds as good now or even better now than she did like, when she was in yeah, her 30s. And I have to say, even like, I, she's one of my favorite singers. I've been listening to her forever uh, since I'm now like 60 years old. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, I remember I have her recording of Sonambula uh, from way back, like from the 90s, something like that. And I've always loved this recording because her tone is just so amazing. But she, my only criticism of it, and I made that criticism on a different podcast a long time ago, is that she doesn't sing with portamento. Ooh. And that has to do, I think, with preserving her technique. She sings super clean. And now that she's like about to retire, she just sings everything like you know she does what she balls wants to the walls yeah <laughs> it's it's incredible and uh yeah the tone quality is so dark and so round even on like high e and stuff like that she just gives all her tone up all the time and it's fantastic singing so yeah, stylistic i think it's kind of fantastic and then speaking of you know long-lived sopranos birgit nielsen uh Hello. i mean birgit she's nielsen, uh, yes. she's uh you know dead now which is a shame <laughs> uh <laughs> that's she is really actually not 100 years old yeah. no she's not <laughs> she, <laughs> yeah. um but her career also just lasted forever and uh i was actually when i was doing my previous segment i i toyed with the idea of, of doing the uh electra that the she did recording. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that's another really good one. Um, just a phenomenal, huge, huge voice. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it kind of it made, it made me a little bit sad, you know, just the reminder of all the social media this week when she was like, oh, 100 years. She would have been 100. I'm like, oh, she would have been. Uh, mm. It made me very sad. Well, let's hear a little bit of the role that uh, she said was like a big paycheck for her. I mean, she's known for singing Wagner mostly, but also for singing one of the hardest roles in the repertoire, which is Turandot. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's hear a little bit of Inquesta Regia. Oh, <laughs> 
<laughs> she's got yeah. a voice on her. There are some pipes. Yeah, and they were like lasers, those high yeah. notes. Mm-hmm. You know, like she never struggled. I mean, as uh, the, the recordings I've heard, she's she never struggles to get them. Yeah. And she gets yeah. them and they like hurt your ears. She's, I, I think she's probably my number one most most wish I had heard live in terms yeah. of singers, just because apparently the, 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 multiple occasions you come across and it's like you recordings don't capture how loud she oh, is. Yeah. I'm like, she's very loud in the recordings. Yeah. Uh, she's amazing. But I mean, it's so. just it's just the purity of her tone. Mm-hmm. It's like a laser, like cutting through any orchestral texture, cutting well, through any chorus. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Especially that's why that's one of the hardest roles. Well, and I mean to do any Wagner, obviously, yeah. but right. to sing over the orchestration there. Yeah, but in Torunda with the chorus in the in the judgment scene, like you can get drowned out by those choruses easily, you know. Especially if you're if you're not feeling fresh. <laughs> well, <laughs> you need to have so your comfortable people. pair of shoes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Dominique Meyer saying that at the uh, Wienerstadt Sober, ninety nine point zero zero percent of all tickets had been sold throughout the season. Here, here's my question: Where's that one percent? Where's that one percent at? Come on, guys. Get it together. It's, <laughs> well, it's probably like, I don't know, partial view. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Somewhere in Some the of those house. terrible boxes. I was, in one, I was in one of the boxes once, and it was, they were the worst. Um, Look, it's it's not surprising, right? I'm, I mean, I, mean, it's I don't got understand to what's the point the, of this article. What's, we're, it's a success, right? The, it's the, a success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. yeah. I, mm. No, um, Weston is just... I, I'm just, I'm, I'm just being Less mean. I'm being mean to the Wiener Look, the, over. I'm sorry. The Wiener thread Stotz that over. you would follow with this is that you would then compare the percentage of tickets sold at the Met, which is America's answer to like the Vienna the, State yeah. 60s right now. It's, yeah. a, it's in the 60s, basically. Yeah. Is it a fair comparison? No, of course it's not a fair comparison because it's the Vienna State Opera people. <laughs> yeah. It's got to be the most famous opera house in the world in the most musical city in the world. True, but yeah. there there are things that they are they are doing that I think we could take some lessons from. I mean, like arts education. <laughs> yeah, Low. number one, like, yeah. Uh, you know, and on, on a more you know, in terms of funding, it's like level. civic and, education for them. It's not even exactly like, yeah. exactly. It's a different. It's a different world over there. It really is. Yeah, um, but also Vienna is like a city of art and music, and that's people, where I'm going to retire. People yeah. go there to experience culture. You mm-hmm. know, they don't say, oh, "Let's go to Vienna and like check out a football game" or something like that. You know. <laughs> Check out the Madonna concert. That's why they come to Alabama. Yeah, (laughs) roll tide. We're working backwards through the uh, the the stories here. Just super quick, uh, the William Florescu story, uh, leaving quote for violating Florentine Opera's policies and prohibitions concerning sexual misconduct. I'll just I've I've met Bill Florescu. Mm. I've, I've met him a couple times, talked to him, and you read a story like this, and I think this is one of my first personal connections to someone who has been the me too caught. reckoning until yes, i get taken exactly, off of the show exactly well until until you do man this show is all about until like Toby personal Sue's reveals and me, but <laughs> this i'm not, not going to sue really, you you're the willing participant this hurts this really hurts when you see he's not a friend of mine he's, he's a colleague in the business right but it's yeah. just like dude what the hell happened what were you thinking what is going on like it man i feel frustrated I feel sad for him. He says in that same article, quote, I'm working through things with my family at this time after this impactful change in my life. Uh, yeah, impactful change, that's definitely one way to put it. Yeah. yeah. I feel sad for all of the people that had to find within themselves the courage to come forward and report that. Boom. I don't feel bad for him. Beautifully put. Yeah, and sorry, we, we, we've talked about this already, but like there's something about like the creative genius. I'm not saying that he's a creative genius, but you know, this hero worship that happens in the arts and classical music. And you, you know, have these people saying yes to you all the time because you are a leader or because you've had your great idea or whatever. And, and then you get people to, are willing to do anything to. Right. And then, and you couple that with people who are desperate to have a career and think by ingratiating themselves to this guy that they yeah. get a step forward, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. In Milwaukee. No, I don't feel sad for him at all personally. He blew it. So yeah, it's, it's just, it's frustrating when you're, you feel the kind of this close to the people involved. I certainly don't know James <laughs> Levine, and I certainly don't know <laughs> Peter Gelb. James Man, this is getting Levine. nasty. But, well, yeah. That's what I was going to say. The, the Met situation is, it's getting ugly. And getting, I mean, it, it's, it well, is. Right. But now it's become this public uh, airing of grievances toward one another. And I'm sorry, any lawyer who says that their client um, is being accused of uh, inappropriate action because people want to destroy that person's legacy, 
GTFO, my friend. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. No, that's not why people would make that allegation. Yeah, that's not no. why someone would come forward. That's not why the Met is saying they're seeking five point six point five point six eight million dollars. Um, five point eight six million. Yeah, and what you. do those people have to gain? Right. Yeah. Exactly. I do, I do. Enough is enough with that. You know what I mean? And to say that his lawyers also said that the company has chosen to create sensationalized allegations, all of which have no legal or factual basis whatsoever. Why would you continue to perpetrate the lies if you're in the James Levine camp? Exactly. You've already been fired. It's You are dragging out the public smear campaign exactly. against yourself. You want to wrap this up in private, in a private settlement, and man, every time you fight it, it gets more and more public. Well, one good thing that's come out of this scandal is that now we can pay attention to some of the other conductors who are working uh, with the Metropolitan Orchestra. And an article yeah. just uh, came out, oh, was it today, uh, of the Lithuanian uh, conductor, oh boy, her name is hard, uh, Gra- Grazinita, Grazinita Tila. Uh, I forget her first name, but she's Lithuanian. Mirga. Mirga. Mirga Grazinita Tula. I don't speak Lithuanian. I'm sorry. We need uh You know the dude. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those Nithalanians. Yeah. But uh yeah, she has a, a favorable review. She's in her early thirties, not like me, I'm in my seventies. <laughs> um and <laughs> you know, getting older in this episode. <laughs> You've aged thirty five years on this show alone. And how many female conductors did we not hear because James right. Levine was holding right. court? Yeah, yeah. For all very true. Performances. Yeah. Here's hoping that our girl, Lydia Yankovskaya, yeah. gets the call. A woman, I'm sorry. Can't call oh, yeah. Girls. Woman, yeah. woman, yes. No. Come on, George. I, 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 mean, I mean that affectionately. Uh, okay. like, yeah, he's my she's boy. Okay. Has, okay. Okay, George. okay, Obviously, she's a woman. Okay. Yes. What? This we can agree on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, baby. Um, All right, that's enough of that. It's time to wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Talking about making space for some other people. Thanks, James Levine, for trying to go away. Mm-hmm. All right, who's got a good call, bad call? I'll, I'll start. Um, so the opera season has officially wound down, at least here in Chicago. I know also in New York. So now is the time for you guys to like get ready for your summer festivals and figure out where you're gonna tra- where you're going to summer. Uh, but in the meantime, <laughs> go back to the archives and listen to some of the great shows that we had before you started listening. If you are a longtime listener, go back and listen again. But if you're a new <laughs> listener, um, we have some really interesting interviews um, that you might be interested in. Uh, Regula Muhlmann, a Mozart specialist soprano. We've had Paul Appleby recently. Uh, the countertenor Jakob Josef Orlinski. Uh, some more like local um, Chicago area. We had a Met winner, Madison Lake. We, we did. did. Yeah. We had Gregory Spears. We talked yeah. about him earlier today. Stuart yeah. Copeland. Yeah, that guy. So uh, they're in the in the OBS archive. So, you know, get your summer listening ready. It's like going to the beach, like have like ten episodes like in your on your iPad, iPod uh, Nano, you know. And like, He doesn't just, know how iPods work. <laughs> those, are, those are on uh, iTunes and SoundCloud yeah. as well. Western or Toby, you guys got I, I got a, uh, my good call is just the, uh, just to, to reiterate the recording that I was talking about early in my segment is the 1978 Herbert von Carrion with the uh, Vienna Philharmonic uh, recording of Zalame. I highly recommend it. If we're making yeah. recommendations, you should also listen to Mahler 5 by conducted by Carrion. Oh, yeah. Carrion's good. I mean, he, he was... And little... there's some Shostakovich, some rock. Yeah. What about opera, Toby? Tell us about opera. Oh, I'm yeah. just thinking about beautiful music now. Stay tuned next week, my friends, and I will give you a Hall of Fame. Can I call that? Can we do that next week? We're not here next week. We're not going to be here next week. Come on, Toby. That's what you guys think. (laughs) As you'll find out now, hey, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S dot com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And, of course, leave a review if you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. 
For Tobias Wright and Weston Williams, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera over the next fortnight. That means two weeks. Why? We're off for Memorial Day next week, but we're back on Monday, June 4th, 9 p.m. Central. More interviews, more opera news, more hot takes, and, of course, Tobias Wright will be uh, hopefully in the house for that brand-new segment. Hall of Fame, join us. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Chicago's sound experiment.